the object that we are going to be seeing, as, as Ian has told you, is very small. It's, it's really not even as large as the button on my jacket. Easy to miss. <laughs> it is easy to miss. But it's really quite an extraordinary piece. To give you um, an outline of Samuel Morse's career, I'll just start by saying that this month we have been featuring great communicators. And the topics of each of our face-to-face talks um, has been someone involved in communication. When we think of Samuel Morris, we certainly think of the communication via the telegraph, but there are more than, there's really more than one way to communicate, and visual communication was an important part of Morris's life and career. He was born in uh, Charlestown, Massachusetts in 1791. He got his early education at uh, Phillips Academy in Andover and then went on to, to Yale College. While he was at Yale, he spent his leisure time as a portraitist, making uh, silhouettes and uh, painted miniatures on ivory for, uh, for his classmates. And in fact, he wrote home to say that all of his leisure time was taken up in making portraits and that he had a steady sort of queue of people who were um, eager to avail themselves of his services. His uh, profile portraits were a dollar and he was selling his painted miniatures for five dollars. When he graduated from Yale in 1810, he very much I think, hoped to be able to pursue a career in the fine arts. But his parents, uh, being what really more practical, uh, apprenticed him to a bookseller in Boston. Well, after a year of that, he managed uh, to continue to do some painting on the side, and he met Washington Alston, the um, celebrated American painter. And Alston... It really became his champion. And with Alston's encouragement, he went back to his parents and begged them for permission to go to London and study with Alston and prepare to enter the Royal Academy uh, to study to be a painter. So his his parents relented, and in 1811, he sailed for London with with Alston. And he prepared with Alston uh, before enrolling in the uh, the Royal Academy. And there he achieved a, a measure of success. The... Royal Academy had a very strong sort of approach to the hierarchy of the fine arts. And at the very top of the pyramid was history painting. And that embraced um, mythology, elevating themes. Just pedestrian portraiture was, was considerably lower on the, on the ladder. Uh, so history painting topped it all. And that could include mythological subjects. While, uh, while Morris was studying at the Royal Academy, he produced a little statuette, a terracotta of Hercules. He painted a, uh, a, a, uh, an image of the dying Hercules that received quite favorable notice, and he also uh, did a painting, I think that was called something, I think it's the Judgment of Jupiter, anyway. That was the direction that his career was going. And he was very hopeful that upon returning to the United States, he would be able to, to uh, usher in a new age of artistic enlightenment enlightenment in the United States that would rival, uh, and that his work would rival that of Michelangelo and Raphael and Titian. His mother had written to him saying that if he expected to make money from anything other than portraits in the United States, he was going to be disappointed. But he had all the enthusiasm of youth, and he opened a studio in Boston. Well, even portrait commissions proved uh, to be rather hard to come by, and he exhibited his 
his painting of Jupiter and his painting of Hercules, and although uh, people did look at them, they weren't particularly impressed. And he had to make his living initially as an itinerant portrait painter through really throughout New England, and he spent the, um, he spent the winters in Charleston uh, painting there. In 1823, he opened a studio in New York, and in 1826, he was one of the founders of the National Academy uh, in, in uh, New York, which was a rival to the, um, uh, to the American Academy, uh, a school and association of artists. He was interested, really, from the time that he was at Yale in not only the fine arts but the sciences. He had still was maintaining the, the hope that he was going to make his mark in the United States as a, as a painter of grand subjects. And in 1821 and 22, he undertook a major canvas representing the U.S. House of Representatives. That painting is in the collection of the Corcoran Gallery here in Washington, so you do have an opportunity to see it. It was um, grand in scale, painted on canvas that he, had, that he brought with him from his studying uh, period in London. Well, the painting proved anything but um, a popular success. He had hoped that people would pay money to come and see this painting and it would establish him as this, as this really great American artist. It didn't do that for him. Uh, he began uh, to really to go back to his interest in, in science that had begun at Yale where he had studied under uh, professors of chemistry as, as, and, and attended lectures on electricity. And he began developing the um, you know, he began to develop a couple of different projects. One was a, a pump for a fire engine, uh, which he designed with his brother. That didn't turn out to be terribly successful. And he also de- designed a machine for replicating marble sculpture. It turned out that that infringed on an existing patent, so he wasn't able to patent it. Uh, he continued to paint. He was a- awarded the position of the basically the teacher of painting and sculpture at the University of the City of New York and, and had a studio. He had a series of sort of family tragedies. His wife died, his mother died, his father died, all within a three-year period. And he went off to Europe in 1829 uh, with the idea of a sort of re- sort of recharging and regrouping. He spent uh, his time dividing it really between Italy and France and came back to the United States on board ship in 1832. Um, and on that crossing, he had a conversation with a gentleman who talked about experiments related to... Um, an electro, um, electromagnetic uh, telegraph. Um, this was some of the early work was going on in this area in Europe, but the the conception of the of the telegraph that that, that Morse developed really began. It had its it had its um, its sort of its roots in that the conversations that he had with this other gentleman, and later on. People on shipboard with Morris would attest to the fact that although they had talked about um, the properties of electromagnetism, it was really Morris who came up with the idea for the telegraph, one that would be a recording device. And he actually made notes in his in his uh, little uh, journal about what he had what he had come up with. He got back to New York um, and set to work on another painting. Uh, this was the. Uh, this was a painting that depicted the gallery at the Louvre. And again, this was going to be his, his next big opportunity uh, to, uh, to try to garner some popular uh, support for his art. It was as unsuccessful in, in gaining that sort of popular approbation as the, um, as the House of Representatives painting had been. 
So he turned his attention um, quite heavily then to working on his, on his telegraph. And he demonstrated it for the first time in 1837, and he applied for a U.S. patent. But the patent process moved very slowly, and he despaired of, of, getting, uh, of getting that patent anytime soon, so he went back to Europe with the idea that perhaps in, in Britain he could secure a British patent and in France... Uh, perhaps a French patent. He was completely unsuccessful in, in London, in fact, was rebuffed and given really very little attention. But when he got to Paris, he was very well received by the scientific community, which was quite excited about, uh, about the telegraph that he, that he described and demonstrated. At the same time that he was in, in Paris in 1838 and then in 1839, news of another extraordinary uh, discovery was, um, was announced. And that was in January of 1839 when the French physicist uh, Francois Arago announced to the world the, um, the invention or the, and revealed the existence of the daguerreotype process, the first practical photographic method which had been developed by, uh, by Louis-Jacques Mondet Daguerre in partnership with another man who had died some years earlier. Morse was intrigued. Um, Daguerre was an artist as well as a scientist and, in fact, imagined that his daguerreotype process would prove very useful for artists um, as a means of gathering information when they, when they constructed their larger compositions. Morse had the opportunity to go to Daguerre's studio um, on March uh, 7th of 1839 and was shown the daguerreotype for the first time. The daguerreotype was uh, created by sensitizing a silver-plated sheet of copper um, that was then placed in a camera and exposed to the subject matter. It was then developed um, by exposing it to heated fumes of, of, um, of, mur of mercury. The daguerreotype really was just like a mirror that captured the image permanently. And uh, Morse was absolutely fascinated. He then invited Daguerre back to his lodgings to see um, his telegraph. And so the two men had an immediate sort of connection in their interests both in the fine arts and in inventing. As it so happened, while Daguerre was visiting with Morse, a fire swept through the diorama that was his bread and butter. He operated a, a diorama in Paris where, uh, where lighting and moving canvases gave the illusion of a, of a scene passing, an animated scene passing before the, the paying audience. Fortunately, the fire didn't, um, didn't spread to Daguerre's residence where all of his materials related to the daguerreotype were. The next day, uh, Morse sat down and penned a letter, this was March 9th of 1839, in which he described uh, the extraordinary qualities of the daguerreotype. That letter went with him when he sailed back to the United States, and it was published in the New York Observer, a newspaper that his, um, that his brother published. The account of the daguerreotype then spread to other newspapers, but the description of how the process was actually affected was not released at that time. It wasn't until August of 1839, that the, the process was revealed in full at a presentation um, in Paris. And it was then, that was on um, August 19th, and then a few weeks later, the process um, was uh, reached the United States. Everything, of course, could travel, the news could travel only as fast as a ship could sail. And so it was really mid-September that the information about the daguerreotype reached New York. There was tremendous interest in being able to replicate this, um, this extraordinary process that allowed 
um, people for the first time to, to capture and secure for, you know, permanently photographic images. The process had rather slow, um, rather, rather long exposure times, and the sensitivity of the plates was pretty slow, which meant that it wasn't initially practical for for portraiture, but the American um, experimenters recognized that the real, uh, the real value for the daguerreotype, certainly as a commercial enterprise, was going to be making it practical for portraiture. And so they set about uh, trying to improve the process by using better lenses, uh, changing the chemistry slightly to make the plates more sensitive, and it wasn't long before, the, um, before daguerreotype portraits were actually possible. Now, Samuel Morse was, was one of the great promoters of the daguerreotype. He was tremendously enthusiastic about it. He saw this as a wonderful tool to artists, uh, and him, uh, himself included. And he opened the, what really was the second portrait studio uh, in New York in uh, collaboration with another professor at the um, university, uh, the city university there in New York. They operated on the, on the rooftop of the university building. They, they put together a, a, a sort of a hastily constructed uh, structure with a glass roof. The exposure times were still considerable, and one of the sitters, in fact, a, a relative of Morse, described sitting there with her face tanning under the brilliant light and tears streaming down her face as she sat there for several minutes while the, uh, while the, while the daguerreotype plate was exposed. Fortunately, uh, the improvements uh, shortened those exposure times, and it wasn't long before people were sitting for their portraits. Morse maintained um, his studio with um, with Dr. Draper until the fall, sometime late in the fall of 1841. By this time, he had gone back to working uh, sort of full out on the on the on the telegraph, and in 1840, he actually secured the patent. And in 1843, he was able to, um, to demonstrate the, the telegraph uh, again for Congress, and he secured what he'd been seeking all along, which was money to construct the, the prototype uh, line between Washington and Baltimore. Uh, Congress appropriated $30,000 in sort of the closing minutes of the session in 1843. And in, um, in 1844, the line was uh, constructed and opened between Washington and Baltimore. Uh, famously, the first message was, what hath God wrought? And Morris's uh, partner in the business, um, Mr. Vail, was able to telegraph back uh, the response. That launched the, the telegraph era. And although um, Morse had hoped that the United States government would purchase the rights to the telegraph for $100,000, that didn't happen. Um, he was very fortunate in, um, in joining up with a, with a part business partner who was able to, um, to handle the business end of things. A number of different um, entrepreneurs then bought rights and began stringing telegraph lines um, throughout the country. Uh, by 1866, the Western Union Company, which um, embraced all of these smaller uh, telegraph companies, was formed, and, um, and that's really you know, sort of where the story ends. Um, but what we should talk about now, of course, is this little portrait. In addition to operating his Daguerrean studio with Dr. Draper, um, Samuel Morris also gave lessons in the daguerreotype 
offered instruction to what turned out to be the first generation of, of, of daguerreotypists and photographers in this country. Uh, and those included a number of names that are really quite famous in the history of photography. One of them was Matthew Brady. Um, another was um, Albert Sands Southworth um, of the famous firm of Southworth and Hawes. And we have a wonderful example of a Southworth and Hawes daguerreotype in the portrait of, of, of Nancy Southworth Hawes, who um, appears across the way. One of his other pupils was a fellow named Jonas M. Edwards, who was no, no older than 17 or 18 in 1841 when he learned the process from Morse. And Mr. Edwards and a friend, um, Thomas Starr, also a pupil of Morse, opened their first uh, Daguerrean operation in Richmond in December of 1841, and we know this um, from advertisements in the, Rich, in, the, um, in the Richmond papers, but also from a letter that survives from Samuel Morse written um, in response to one that he'd obviously received from Jonas Edwards, uh, congratulating him on the fact that his business was going well and, and commenting a bit on the fact that Morse himself had not been engaged in any daguerreotyping uh, since the fall. The little image of Samuel Morse that we have here is by Jonas Edwards. Edwards joined up with um, Edward Anthony, another student of Morris, and they embarked on quite an ambitious enterprise in Washington, D.C. to daguerreotype all the members of Congress. And they did this between 1842 and 1844. By the time they exhibited these portraits in New York City in their Broadway uh, gallery, they had more than 400 portraits of notable Americans. And this is really the first, um, the first time that photographic portraits of significant Americans are, are collected collected and exhibited. Sadly, that entire collection was lost in a later fire, but um, both um, Edwards and, and Edward Anthony uh, could certainly claim uh, you know, a milestone in having made those images. Those daguerreotypes also served as the basis for a very popular print showing Henry Clay addressing the Senate, and each of the little likenesses of the senators that surround him uh, is based on one of the daguerreotype portraits. Uh, sadly, Mr., um, Mr. Edwards didn't live terribly long um, after the opening of that um, exhibit in New York. And in fact, he died in 1847. At the time of his death, it was reported that he had died of an ailment of the heart. And later, um, several years later, in an account of some of the early achievers in the, in the Daguerrean uh, process, it was mentioned that he had, um, he had really sort of been a victim of his, um, of his you know, of, of, sort of sort of having gone all out, or sort of a victim of his, of his enthusiasm. And it's quite likely, uh, given the fact that he was only 23 when he died, that he may very well have suffered ill effects from the chemistry. Um, of course, the, uh, there were... You know, we, nowadays, daguerreotypists, and there are some that still practice this, um, this very interesting process, know all about venting their spaces, and they have to be very careful about the materials they use. And no one nowadays uses heated mercury. You can still develop, um, still develop the daguerreotype without heating the mercury, but the mercury fumes certainly had um, you know, dangerous health consequences. Another member of the Edwards and um, and um, and Edward Anthony group uh, died several years uh, later, and um, and Edward Anthony went into the photographic supply business a short time after that. So you you can't help but wonder whether the loss of two partners um, had something to do with Edward Anthony going into the photographic supply business as opposed to remaining um, an active daguerreotypist. 
this little piece uh, came up for sale at auction several years ago, and that was how the Portrait Gallery was able to acquire it. We know that it was by um, that it's by Jonas um, Edwards because of the little um, handwritten tag that came with it, and in the sheet that we were passing around, you can see the little tag um, tied to the top of the of the little uh, locket piece. And it says that it was um, was made by Jonas Edwards, uh, you know, that the subject is Samuel Morris, the inventor of the telegraph. And it says that it was taken in 1845, and it was given by Uncle, you know, Uncle um, Jonas, Uncle Jonas to um, a, f- a family member, and that family member in turn gave it to another family member, and that was the, the sort of story behind it. Um, but it it certainly is a wonderful piece. It's the only daguerreotype from life that we know of of Samuel Morse. There, uh, there are a couple of copy plates, meaning that a daguerreotype was made of a daguerreotype. Daguerreotypes are direct positive images, so there isn't a negative. You can't, you make a, you make a daguerreotype and that's a unique object. The only way to replicate it is to put it in front of the camera and make a daguerreotype of that daguerreotype. So there are copy daguerreotypes, but a daguerreotype from life is obviously the, the most desirable. And so this little piece in this little um, pendant is perhaps, at least as far as we know, the only surviving image and the earliest image that we have of, of Samuel Morris. Photographic jewelry was one of the popular um, forms in which photographs and photographic images circulated in the early days of photography. And they um, appropriated some of the same um, mounts and presentations that had been used for painted portraits. So there are painted miniatures that were displayed in these these sort of large pendants or in other forms of jewelry. But the popularity of the daguerreotype quickly, um, you know, quickly didn't by any means eliminate interest in painted miniature portraits, but it certainly uh, muscled in on the business. And you can see from the variety of forms of photographic jewelry, from pendants to a wonderful pair of earrings to even a little change purse with a daguerreotype of a dog on it, that there was just a huge amount of enthusiasm for, uh, for photographic portraiture that was, um, that was embedded in these wonderful pieces of jewelry. Well, I think that um, gives us a, you know, a sort of a, a general um, sort of survey of Samuel Morris's career. And if you have um, questions about, um, about his life or, or this little piece, I'll be happy to, um, to try to answer them. How did they get such a small image? The, um, it's basically the, the, the images were done on a larger plate, and then the plates cut down. So the the aperture of the lens can basically determine sort of what size um, you know what size you you get, and I've seen examples of um, daguerreotype images, sort of three different or four different portraits on a single plate. The plate would basically be moved um, in the plate holder and exposed at in sort of quadrant, so you could get four different images on a single plate, and then those would have been cut in order to fit them into the um, into the jewelry. In fact, one of the very the first American camera that was patented, and that was patented by um, Alexander Wolcott, who opened the first 
Portrait Studio in New York in, um, in the spring of 1840, um, in March of 1840. That camera, in its patent description, mentions that it's suitable for, um, for making breast pins, that it can actually be adapted to make images that are small enough to be used for breast pins. So right from the get-go, they were thinking about, um, about photographic jewelry. Did Morris ever have the um, ability to become an artist? Well, he gave it up. Um, and in fact, he, he actually was really, he's really quite a wonderful painter. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's sad that, that he was, you know, that he was unsuccessful in gaining the, the kind of acclaim for his art that he had, that he had hoped. But he took great pride in, in the telegraph and, and its success. His goal from, uh, from the very beginning, I mean, and it seems to have been one that he had, um, almost from, from childhood, was that he wanted to do something that was going to be in the best interest, sort of not necessarily of himself, but in, the, um, in developing the nation. And he had these very grand ideas about, um, about America's place in the world, that it was going to last for, you know, for a thousand years, and everything that could be done uh, to, to, advance, you know, to advance the nation, uh, whether it was in the fine arts or technology, was all to the better. And you know, each thing he tried, he did it. You know, you know that you know that he in the back of his mind it was: is this going to be the thing that is going to allow me to make this spectacular contribution that's going to advance um, the culture? With his painting, he was really aiming at elevating American taste to a level that was equivalent to that of Europe, but but native-born. You know, he, he wanted his grand history paintings, his painting of the House of Representatives. He wanted that to be sort of American-born rather than a European subject. He wanted to sort of build on American history. You look at paintings like, um, like Leutz's Washington Crossing the Delaware. I mean, there's a perfect example of a big American history painting. Did he study with Benjamin West? Yes, Benjamin West was was there at the um, at the Royal Academy, and so he did indeed study with West. And what is the difference in the process between a tintype and a daguerreotype, and the later carte de visites that? Carte de Okay, um, the daguerreotype is on a on a, as I said earlier mentioned earlier uh, on a silver plated sheet of copper. Uh, a tin type is actually not on um, tin, but on a thin piece of sheet iron. And the the difference is that a, a tin type actually uh, the chemistry is different. Um, it was a much cheaper process. A, a tin type is actually um, is actually a, a negative image that is on a japanned piece of sheet iron that makes it appear positive. I'm not probably giving you the the best description. Uh, paper print photography from first from paper negatives and then from glass negatives comes into use in the United States in the 1850s. Uh, the first negatives are paper negatives and those are used to create paper prints, but they don't have the, cl- the clarity and the definition. You can imagine if you created a negative on a, on a piece of paper, it's going to have all of the characteristics of the sort of the fiber of the paper. And if you print from a paper negative, you get a very sort of diffused and soft, um, almost um, sort of impressionistic image rather than a really sharp one. When glass negative technology came in in the mid-1850s, 
That made it possible to, to print from a, from a sharp and clear glass negative and make paper prints that look like the kinds of paper prints that we got, we've gotten used to in, in our lifetime. The, um, the real popularity of small paper prints, uh, so-called cartes de visite, because they were a pro- the French word for calling card or visiting card is, is carte de visite. And the carte de visite format was approximately the same size as a calling, as a calling card. That became very popular in America really during the campaign, Abraham Lincoln's campaign in 1860. And in fact, we have in the, um, in the Face of Lincoln exhibition an opportunity to see carte de visite portraits of, of Lincoln. It's rare to see smiles in Certainly the length of time it took to make a daguerreotype, you couldn't smile. Well, actually, it's interesting that you brought that up because you don't tend to see people smiling in photographic portraits in the 19th century. But there are, there are several reasons for that. First of all, portrait conventions were such. You don't tend to see very many painted portraits of people smiling either. You didn't, as a rule, have your portrait made on that many occasions, and the idea was that that portrait was probably going to, was going to outlive you. I mean, that portrait was going to be around for a long time. How did you want to be represented to future generations? If that was going to be passed down in your family, did you want to look like a sort of frivolous, uh, insubstantial person who sort of grinned when they had their picture made, or did you want to look uh, sober, reflective, serious, uh, a substantial person, someone of character, not uh, sort of a flibbity gibbet. And so the posing conventions were, were more serious. However, there are some absolutely wonderful daguerreotypes of people smiling. And some of them are very early. We don't um, have any in our collection, but there are several um, wonderful collections of daguerreotypes. There's a terrific book that's recently been published by Keith Davis, who is the curator of the um, photographic collection at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And it's a, a book on the origins of photography. It's from, uh, from daguerreotypes to, to dry plate. And it has wonderful illustrations, and you will see some people smiling um, there. The exposure times were very long during that initial period, the first six, eight, nine months, the exposure times were were, were fairly lengthy. But that was overcome. Um, well, I mean, the very first the very first pictures were something like, you know, 20 minutes when someone was sitting with their eyes closed in full sun. But Samuel Morris had it down to a few seconds, uh, depending on the time of day and the amount of available light and the quality of the lenses. So uh, people within within two years of the daguerreotype's introduction, people are making exposures at you know at a at. Uh, five seconds, two seconds. Some are longer. The larger the plate, um, the longer the exposure time. But you can you can certainly see that you wouldn't have been able to get you wouldn't have been able to make this process commercially viable if people had to sit there in agony for you know for half an hour to have their portrait made. But you will constantly encounter descriptions that say, "Oh, the daguerreotype. It took a half an hour to have your portrait made." Well, by you know, by, as I say, within a relatively short time, those exposures had been reduced significantly. There are contemporary daguerreotypists that I've talked with. Their exposures tend to be, um, you know, three, five, seven seconds. And you can blink. Uh, <laughs> that won't register. I mean, it, 
if you blink when you're having your daguerre, you don't have to sit with your eyes like you know your eyelids pasted back. You can um, you can blink. Uh, the main thing was that you didn't want to have your body moving, and so there were braces that were designed to just sort of hold, to just immobilize your head and allow you um, to sit and and maintain that posture without without moving. Thank you very much for coming. We'll continue our conversation about great communicators next week when Professor Ben Click comes to speak about Samuel Langhorne Clemens. Thank you very much okay. for opening our eyes a little bit. Okay. I do appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. All right. I appreciate it. Okay. Enjoy. Thank you. <laughs>